Welcome to Government in Plain Language, hosted by Mabinti Yella. Each episode, we talk to subject matter experts and former executives to uncomplicate the business of government. Good morning. My name is Mabinti Yella. I'm your host for Government in Plain Language. Joining me today is a very special guest. Her name is Angela Thornton. She spent over 20 years as a trial attorney, so supervisory trial attorney at that, at the D.C. Attorney General's Office. Today, she's going to reflect on her experience with D.C.'s Attorney General's Office and other government-related experiences. Angela, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. Tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get started and why a legal career? I graduated from the University of Virginia and decided that I wanted to go into law and combine my interest in children and the law. So I graduated in Massachusetts, sat for the bar there, and decided to return to the District of Columbia, since this is my native uh, area, and be around my family. And the opportunity at that time presented itself for me to work with the Youth Services Administration. So I served as their counsel and disciplinary hearing officer under what was then the Jerium Consent Decree, because at that time there were some concerns about the way the families were being managed in the District of Columbia in terms of uh, juvenile delinquency. And so they actually had the public defender service involved. And from there, I met a number of people and the opportunity presented itself for me to work with the Corporation Council in the area of child abuse and neglect. So I joined their civil protection and prosecution team. And um, within about three years, I became uh, supervisory trial attorney general. We actually were responsible for thousands, literally thousands of cases coming before the family division each day, including as a a trial attorney having to appear for initial hearings each day. We wouldn't know whether we were going to get one case or 20 cases on a given day, but only one attorney was assigned. We were usually limited in terms of the number of attorneys that we had available and The other attorneys had to cover all the status hearings, and those came up pretty frequently and regularly. So we could literally have hundreds of cases on the docket. We would have to pick up a stack of files and head to court. The new cases had to be before the judge by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, no matter how many cases there were. If a parent was contesting a removal, we had to have a probable cause hearing immediately. So it was very intense, and the court really relied on on our attorneys and looked to us for guidance. So we would have social workers, police officers, attorneys, and if there was a heinous case that involved criminal conduct, then we would also have the U.S. Attorney's Office involved in a parallel criminal matter for child homicides, for example. It sounds like you have all these different stakeholders that are kind of involved in what you do. And one of the things I'm fascinated about is the relationship between D.C. government and the federal government, particularly in your case, the U.S. Attorney's Office. Talk about that relationship as it relates to getting work done. One of the things that I worked very hard at was trying to give our office a voice at the table in terms of decisions involving the courts and the U.S. Attorney's Office, because they do play a more vital role in day-to-day governmental activities because the city does not have statehood. So we started a number of task forces. Uh, When I came into the office, we were not able to be a voice at the table, but I decided that it had to be a priority because we were directly impacted by decisions that the U.S. Attorney's Office was making and that the courts were making. So we had to become key stakeholders and to be at the table to have a discussion about the impact. We, We actually tended to know more about what was going on with the community, the families, than anyone, any of the other stakeholders. So I did uh, become a member of the D.C. Affairs Steering Committee. I had to run for that office through the D.C. Bar and at some point became a co-chair. That blended a lot of government stakeholders, private bar stakeholders, and the courts. And we actually launched a youth law fair, which is probably in about its 10th year at this time. It was an award-winning uh, community project. We also launched the Fathering Court, which brought together a number of stakeholders because, as you can imagine, there are a lot of battles about child support. But we wanted to make it less divisive and more about the best interests of the child. So, again, the stakeholders, the courts, the courts were very enthusiastic. 
every level of the court came together to make that happen. And it's still and probably at least it's it's fifth or sixth year. It's a very successful program. And um, we also, I joined the Mayor's Advisory Committee on Child Abuse and Neglect. I was actually the chair, the only attorney to chair that uh, because of the interest in um, making sure that we were at the table. When you say table, what do you mean by that? You really need to have face-to-face discussions with people. The names and the titles are not particularly meaningful until you have a discussion about where you have common areas of interest, where you have concerns, how you can address and resolve those concerns, not just in terms of the attorneys and the courts, but for the community. And that has really stuck um, with the D.C. government. Uh, Since that time, I know there are still a number of task forces and committees where each of the stakeholders has a face-to-face discussion where I can pick up the phone and call one of the stakeholders and say, this is a problem, this is an issue, we need to address this, and they're usually receptive. So that is really the way we brought the community, the courts, and both sides of the government together. And so when you're you're talking about bringing people to the table, you're talking about in terms of policy changes, what what exactly do you mean in terms of uh, making sure that all the different um, stakeholders are aligned in their vision and direction going forward? Basically, someone has to recognize that there is an issue or a concern. In my case, um, I realized that a lot of decisions were impacting our office as attorneys, and we were not at having a voice in terms of the conversations that the court was having about um, how those decisions would impact us. And it turns out the court was very open to having those discussions. So there have been then and now a number of committees and task forces that combine the federal interests, the local interests that the court actually spearheads in the courthouse. Those those meetings are key to bringing everyone together, to getting everyone on the same page, to not duplicating efforts, to not undermining each other's efforts and interests. So those committees continue to thrive, but they are key to bringing together all of these different stakeholders, because unlike other areas in D.C., you don't have statehood, so you really have no choice but to work closely with the federal stakeholders who impact our day-to-day decisions relative to the Attorney General's office. And talk about the impact of the federal government's outreach in terms of D.C. government's day-to-day operations. I will say that for the most part, and this this started uh, during my tenure, uh, that they the federal government was willing to send their representatives, the key stakeholders that impacted decisions uh, related to the District of Columbia, such as the child support, the federal arm of the child support division. They would work with us closely on trainings and conferences and presentations, um, having to keep track of paternity and being responsible as a city for establishing paternity when children are born out of wedlock was a key component of our federal funding. So we had to work very closely with their key stakeholders on that. And of course, for the child abuse and neglect cases, because of the criminal element, we had to address a lot of that. Um, And it really was very helpful. Key judges made the courthouse open for youth to come in once a year and actually observe what the court process was about, to actually see lockup. And in some cases, it was a matter of kind of scaring kids straight. But their parents were there and um, the community came out in droves. We had lunch. We actually were able to get that sponsored. We had guest speakers. So it became a wonderful event. And it brought together, again, the federal, the local, the private, the community. And it was ideal. That's that's what you really want to shoot for. In terms of um, the cases themselves and the litigation process itself, um, I remember in our previous conversation, you talked a lot about some of the tension between the U.S., attorneys and you know the 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 DC uh, prosecutors talk can you talk a little bit about that I won't say tension but um, a complicated relationship if you, if you will well that is true I mean whenever we had a civil matter which was controlled by the city and the city's attorneys but there was a counterpart criminal matter such as a child homicide it became a key issue because prior to the criminal matter solidifying, we would have to be in court in most cases 
requesting removal of the child, placement of the child, without the benefit of all the information, the key information that the federal government had from the U.S. Attorney's Office. So we actually had occasions where the judge would stop the civil proceeding and locate, for lack of a better word, track down the U.S. attorney assigned to that case, because sometimes we didn't know who that was or whether the person we thought it was had changed. So we would have to locate that person and bring that person into court to let everyone know what the status was of the criminal matter, because that was almost as important as the civil. We could protect the child in terms of a placement, but knowing where to place the child required more information about the circumstances surrounding, for example, a child homicide or a child with fractures. Um, and, and then it would proceed from there. But it was always a challenge to know what the criminal arm was doing versus the, the uh, civil. So we eventually came together in what's called a child advocacy center and brought together weekly the U.S. Attorney's Office and their designees and our attorneys and the social workers and the police officers to make sure we were all on the same page with the family so we did not do the victim a disservice or the child's family a disservice. Make sure that the child had not just the criminal side covered, in which case they sometimes thought they were actually the criminals and not the victims. We had to have a place that was neutral that made sure that they were taken care of psychologically, therapeutically, in terms of their physical needs, school needs, placement needs. There's a lot that would go into those decision-making um, areas. So we brought everyone together to track those cases every two weeks at the Children's Advocacy Center, which is now Safe Shores. Again, it's another model program that's over 10 years old. And um, that's just an example of the best way to maintain the communication. It was a challenge getting us started, but Eric Holder, who was the U.S. Attorney for D.C. at that time, and Mayor Sharon Pratt-Kelly gave us the authority and spearheaded bringing those groups together, what we call a multidisciplinary team approach to forensic investigations of child abuse and neglect. So it's it sounds like, you know, um, well, these kind of working groups can can work. These multidisciplinary and multi agency working groups can um, can actually work in terms of bringing different stakeholders from different departments and you know different um, governmental organizations for a common cause and you know to to get work done. You know what were some of the the other ways you as a manager juggle the different stakeholders besides I guess you know orchestrating or leading these kind of working groups and think um, think stations. I had to really prioritize um, networking, communicating with all of the key stakeholders. Without doing that, nothing would come together. It had to be personal. It, it meant having lunch with people, having dinner with people, cross-referencing different organizational structures to bring in some parties, uh, knowing who the key stakeholders were, sitting on committees with those stakeholders. And again, it, it should also be personal because we are people and, and there is a personal touch that makes the difference. Not everyone has that skill set. It's something you have to work on. It has to be an intelligent, intentional decision that you want to work with individuals at various levels of the community. For me, the community was key and the community recognized that. They recognized that I sincerely wanted to work with them. And whenever I was a participant in their meetings, they welcomed and embraced me. And the court, realizing that that was true from their perspective as well, began to have community meetings in neighborhoods. And that's something that they recognized independent of us, but we also had town hall meetings. Uh, the current chief judge of the Superior Court, Anita Dosey-Herring, convened town hall meetings to discuss the fathering court. They were well attended. There was standing room only. So there is a vested interest in the community and the stakeholders and having face-to-face discussions, but we and roles like mine have to facilitate bringing those different entities, factions together to have discussions about how we can better serve the community and the individuals that we are intended to serve. Hey, I think you bring a really great point of, I thought it was really interesting, um, talking about making sure you get community buy-in and having a vested interest. Um, what were some, some lessons that you learned as a manager um, from you know, these kind of initiatives? Um, it's definitely key to maintain continuity and a presence. You can't launch a really great 
project or program and then kind of walk away from it. Uh, in some cases, it continues on, but in other areas, um, you lose ground in terms of the original purpose. Sometimes the entire purpose shifts in a way that's really not beneficial to the stakeholders in the community. So I think you have to be really careful about that. And then to make sure that, that the energy that you placed in the project or initiative in the first place, that it doesn't, it's not for naught, that you have to maintain um, continuity in terms of what's going on with it from time to time. Even if you're not still a stakeholder, it's important to be in communication with those who take over from you. And I've had lots of people reach out to me even beyond my time of being directly involved to discuss issues or concerns or to network with some of the original founders or co-founders. And, you know, keeping that open line of communication is, is obviously key to, to any type of organizational change or um, any type of launching any type of initiative. Um, what would you say are, you know, some of the key um, lessons going forward in, that has helped you in your current position? Um, I, it, it has made a huge difference for me to have cultivated a school set of working with communities and families and kind of the underdog, um, the population that doesn't vote, but is desperately in need of services because that's what I'm addressing now, homeless youth. They don't vote. Their families are typically dysfunctional or not able to help them. So we're kind of starting from ground zero and they don't have the same political clout or juice that there is for an adult in that position. So it's a lot of lobbying and you have to be genuinely concerned about the community because there is no prestige in this work. It's simply a matter of feeling compassion and wanting to make sure that those who are considered less than, that they actually get the, a level playing field so that they can be the best young adult or child that they can be so they can grow up to become participating members of our community most of uh, our population that we serve, that the um, most ignored parts of our population actually have tremendous potential given the support that they need to grow into adults who are contributing members of society. Can you talk about um, what are some things that you that you notice um, out, as an outsider in terms of the relationship between the, the federal government and um, D.C.? Yeah, I will say that one of the major changes that took place, and this was under Judge Farron, and it, it seems to be key, your leadership in the government agency, that person's influence and respect can be key to making major changes. And under Judge Farron, who was a retired or senior D.C. Court of Appeals judge, he pushed parity and pay for the attorney general's office. When I came in, we were making the same or less than an entry-level social worker, which was around $45,000 a year. The federal government's attorneys were making six figures long before we even dreamed of ever seeing that kind of salary. And, and that was basically unfair. So he was responsible for bringing parity there. I'm not sure whether we've continued with that parity. I, I think that it probably is the case. Um, but it does take stakeholders like Judge Farron working with um, other city leaders and federal leaders. The Public Defender's Office, for example, they are federally funded and they are one of the strongest and best public defenders arms in the nation. And that is why, because you can attract talent with less. The more parity you can bring to the table in terms of salary, the better talent you can attract. And that's made a huge difference in the Attorney General's office and in the U.S. Attorney's office. That's why the federal government often has um, the better qualified staff because they're able to attract those folks with their salaries. But D.C. has a lot more parity now, and I think they have been able to attract uh, more talent. So you, you talked about talent, the talent gap. I mean, that's something that many of our guests have talked about within the federal government, but it's also, uh, you know, seems to be apparent with, with D.C. government. You know, what is it like managing and recruiting in D.C. government? That is that can be a challenge. I mean, you know, again, back to fairness and access and transparency. It really helps even in the D.C. government to know someone on the inside because you're in a pool of anonymous people. Unless someone can identify you as the person that not only looks good on paper, 
but we know for a fact that you're trustworthy, that you're not going to be difficult, that you're going to be present. Um, those factors you can't really glean from your typical resume and references because, of course, people are going to give you references from people that they know are going to say they're great and wonderful. And at the same time, as an applicant, you have to be careful about the environment you're going into because if you go into a toxic environment, then it can be the worst decision of your life career-wise. So it's important for applicants to do their homework and if at all possible, to talk to someone who's actually working in that office. Because I've certainly, my experience ended up in environments that were toxic and I just had no idea. And they can completely destroy your career path. So the hiring committee that I sat on for the Office of the Attorney General, there were several of us who were also very involved in the legal community and the community itself. So we did uh, target those folks that had some personal knowledge, networking, within our office or through the courts, but that there was some way to independently verify who the person was and whether we could really bring them onto the team. Because once you're hired, it's very difficult to, and very negative to have to bring someone on board and then have to possibly let them go or wish you could let them go because it's always difficult. Uh, I would say there's more job security in the federal government and more prestige and generally better, higher, consistent pay. I mean, they actually give their staff attorneys bonuses. So D.C. government, through the time that I was there, we never received any bonuses. And yet our counterparts consistently received bonuses as high as $11,000. Wow. So that was seemingly unfair. I'm, I do think there may have been some changes in that regard with the D.C. government since that time, but I'm not sure we really have the authority to do much with bonuses, and, and that would be helpful. So, so for example, within the federal government, you have OPM and some of the other kind of administrative organization. Is it so? It, so, the question I'm going to ask is: Is it a matter of executive leadership at the highest level uh, to be able to implement and put together these changes, where where there is some parity, more parity in terms of salaries? What what needs to change at, at the highest level? There's a combination of factors. Um, I think we, the city does, has some level of participation in, um, you know, job fairs and career fairs. Uh, I've seen more success with that on the federal side than the local side. But the problem with both is that you become anonymous in a pool of possibly hundreds of other candidates. So how do you stand out? And in some occasions, it's unfair that people who do know someone inside, it could be Eric Holder, it could be some other personal connection, that those connections can have more weight than any other factors. So it's really a balancing act. At the end of the day, what you want is, a, is an attorney or a staff person who's going to be reliable. So I cultivated relationships with staff that were not on the professional radar screen, that were secretaries or assistants or investigators, and invested in them and supported them. So most of those that I supported who were not managers are now managers or obtained job security. Came from literally a grade one, which at the time I said was unconscionable, to be brought up to at least a minimum working wage, which was a grade six or seven at that time. And then some of them went on to nine, tens, and elevens. So I think we have to invest as managers and cultivating from the bottom to the top, not just at the top. At the top, it's really key that, again, the leadership that you have heading up your office has to communicate with the mayor's level, has to be a key stakeholder in the mayor's cabinet, and has to be heard at the mayor's level. But at the end of the day, because of the funding issues, they also have to lobby the city council members who typically have a vested interest in seeing any pay parity. And actually, I think we had to pass legislation to make that happen for the attorney general's office. Wow. I mean, that that's definitely... Something I, I never thought to think here that you know, in order to get paid, you had to pass legislation. I, that's kind of mind blowing to me. But yeah, so I guess um, if you can maybe speak to a little bit to um, some workarounds, you know, you talked about building relationships. A, a big part of our conversation has been about building relationships. What are some other workarounds in terms of, um, you know, that managers can kind of implement to make sure that they are creating a working environment that is, uh, that's conducive to, to hiring the best and brightest talent. 
Well, I can tell you that during my time, and it's it's probably always the case, there were a lot of political decisions that were being made. There were a lot of things going on in the city, and we didn't necessarily individually know how to put all those pieces together. So quite frankly, we had what, what, what I launched as power lunches. And in those power lunches, we brought together all the key stakeholders within our legal circle or outside of it who would be able to inform a discussion about what is really going on. We know this is happening here and that's happening there, but who's really pulling these strings? What's really behind this? What? Why are we And sometimes feeling punished? What's the history? What's the context here? Are we coming out of whatever the issue is or the concern is? And how are we going to come out of it? So um, I would say networking. And, and that has to be a very confidential circle. Because um, not everyone wants to share that information. So you have to be careful about those that you're speaking to. I mean, people have been known to be at lunch and have a conversation that impacted some higher level and um, ended up on the hot seat because they were overheard to say something that was really not very diplomatic or politically incorrect. So you have to be careful about your private, personal, and professional circles, but you use those circles to become informed about opportunities, giving people opportunities, because you, again, are in a pool of a number of anonymous people. So you almost are forced to use whatever contacts you can to try to get up on the radar screen. But even then, everyone wants to be sure that you are the right person, the best person, and so on, because making a higher decision hiring decision that doesn't work out. It's not good for either the candidate or for the agency. That, that becomes a real challenge and, and we don't need those distractions. Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the things that we, we talk about in MSY Associates is the importance of, um, you know, building uh, infrastructures where you are not only attracting the best and brightest talent, but it's, it's also creating an organizational culture that allows for that talent to be to grow and develop and things of that nature. So um, one, one of the hot topics, particularly in government, I mean, you see um, the CIA has rebranded. Uh, I don't know if you saw the CIA's Twitter and social media, they rebranded. Um, there's this big push and you look at um, the current administration, Biden's administration's, uh, the, the, the personnel. This has been this big uh, push for diversity and inclusion kind of the hot topic and not only on the federal level, but also on the corporate level and the public uh, private sector as well. Um, talk a little bit about diversity and inclusion a little bit. And what does that actually mean to you? Um, I had not heard that about the CIA. That is interesting. And I, I think that is important for the federal government. Um, and it is also important to bring a variety of interest and candidates into those agencies, not just that agency, but the federal government agencies as well. Because again, you kind of get the same people coming in when you're only networking through people who look like you, talk like you, have your background. So I think there really needs to be more transparency in the federal government, especially in bringing in people who are not considered insiders. Um, and how you make that happen, maybe it's through this approach. Uh, diversity is great, but even with diversity, you really need to still make sure you have the right people at the table because not everyone who is brown-skinned thinks the same as, as others who are. So it's a diversity of uh, backgrounds and experiences and vetting. Um, I mean, we have a Supreme Court justice who doesn't necessarily think like most of the community that he represents. So even in the federal government, there needs to be a special vetting process where you have people who are sincere and genuine about diversity in terms of diversity and who generally want to affect change and are going to bring positive change, not negative energy. Uh, bringing extreme um, approaches to that is problematic in the workforce because everybody has to work together and get along. So there has to be a kind of calm transitioning when you have different backgrounds and um, preparing people for that. But typically, looking at ways to bring them together, not socially necessarily, but in more informal ways is a good icebreaker. Just throwing people into the, you know, throwing them into the wolves kind of without any preparation or any support system for any kickback that might occur, backlash, I'll say, 
Because just putting someone physically there doesn't necessarily make them welcomed or doesn't mean that they won't get screened out at some point because someone doesn't really like them. They, they can dislike you because of the color of your shirt and say you need to go. But that might not be the real reason they want you to go. So, you know, vetting that and having people within the um, the federal government structure or even the local government structure who are going to be um, open-minded about making sure that they give everyone the support that they need, that no one feels um, isolated or cast out because of someone's personal agenda or personal likes or dislikes. I think that's really important. Let's say with the D.C. government and also in regards to D.C. government, you know, what did diversity and inclusion look like then? Um, and what maybe what are some changes that it's that has happened since you've been there? The key difference for the hiring committee when I was there was that we had diversity on the hiring committee and we talked about diversity on the hiring committee. We had the life experience, the professional experience and the involvement in uh, the bar to know um, where there were gaps and where there were issues with hiring. So we made a conscious effort to not only work the system to the benefit of having a more diverse uh, community or professional environment, but we also wanted to bring in those candidates who were, as I mentioned, intelligent, bright, and sincere. So that it wasn't just a matter of your personal opportunistic interest. It was what is whether what is this person going to represent the greater good of this organization? Are they going to bring a positive element to this organization? Are they going to be able to do the work? Because at the end of the day, being able to do the work, being willing to commit to doing the work, which was usually more than eight hours a day, was key. Being able to get along with people was key. So no matter what your background, you needed to be able to get along with people. You need to be dedicated. You need to be focused. You need to be positive. You need to be willing yourself to do more than just report every day and leave at five o'clock. So we vetted all that. We were very down to earth as a committee. We made sure we put people on the committee um, who were open-minded and positive and supportive. And then in turn, we looked for candidates who were. It was good to have a diverse pool. We would actually look for diversity in our pool. But at the end of the day, we also want to make sure you were going to be a good fit, that you were going to contribute, that you were not going to be a problem and you were not going to create a toxic environment. Yeah. So, so what, a, what, a, what a lively conversation. I think, I think one of the interesting things about our conversation is the component of D.C. government, government itself, the nature of D.C. government. Um, you know, D.C., for most of our viewers uh, who don't know, D.C. is unique because while it has representation, we have the wonderful Eleanor Holmes Norton, who's been our representative for years. Um, so it has representation in Congress, but its ability to self-govern itself is limited by congressional oversight. Talk about the dynamic, how this dynamic affects missions in, in D.C. government, the missions of different agencies in D.C. government. It is very problematic because uh, it, it limits our budgetary authority. Even though the city raises a, a tremendous amount of revenue as a result of tourism and traffic and parking and colleges and universities there, the city is still very limited in terms of its resources, in part because a lot of the footprint for the city is occupied by the federal government. And while all of the D.C. Uh, residents pay federal taxes. They are not getting the full benefit of their federal taxes in terms of their represent representation in Congress. And again, it's a throwback to colonialism. I think the only way we're going to ever resolve it, because it really should be a bipartisan issue, is to have um, some one a representative from each side of the of Congress to push forward. Um, the different options for giving the city full statehood. There may be some reasons for limitations or reasons that, that I'm not completely clear about, but if that is the case, then separate those aspects out, but give the city full representation, the right to vote in Congress, to be heard. I mean, Eleanor, her advocacy is great, but she is still limited. Her hands are still tied in terms of having the full force and effect of the representation that states have. And we have more people in the District of Columbia than many states. So that really needs to be remedied, but I think it's going to take a full-time person with some networking. And, and frankly, I think it needs to be something at the highest levels 
of the government, meaning Congress on both sides, and making it a bipartisan committee to look at it and to be committed to finding a resolution. And they also need the private sector, someone with wealth who can afford to finance um, that initiative because the city is not allowed to dedicate staff at all looking at obtaining uh, that right to full representation. Right. Uh, so some independent person like Jeff Bezos or someone at that level, some high-level stakeholder with billions of dollars to spare who is sold on the fact that that is only fair and reasonable um, really needs to push that and then have a bipartisan effort or committee to look at the issues and how to address the issues fairly. So is that, you know, beyond D.C., um, uh, you know, acknowledging and maybe passing a law for D.C. statehood? What are some other ways um, in which, you know, this kind of, I wouldn't say chokehold that Congress has over D.C. can, can be uh, remedied? Well, it really has to be a, nat- a national effort. And, and if you recall, we were we had a hard time getting the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. But Stevie Wonder, and this might seem mundane, but he wrote a song, which most of us are still very familiar with, that really put the message out. And he personally invested his time and energy, and that actually led to us having the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday in a positive way. So I believe something similar has to happen. And you think about the animated cartoon about educating people about Congress and your right to vote. I think something on that scale, which is still a historical cartoon, but very informative and educational, needs to take shape across the nation. We need to vet it through every city, county. We need to use the same advocacy that we use to change the outcome of this election to change statehood for the District of Columbia, because you really have the same stakeholders. D.C. is probably the most diverse uh, community in the nation. And so they need to use that diversity to reach out to their counterparts across the nation and cities and counties where there are people that they know will be supportive because it is key to the next round of elections, um, getting that recognized. So I think it's going to take a combination of personal investment and finding the right person to put the face on it to bring it to the rest of the nation. Yes, it sounds like a you know almost like a grassroots campaign meets a more formative uh, advocacy. So grassroots means advocacy, uh, maybe lobbying uh, as well. Um, talk a little bit about specifically how uh, the limitations of statehood has impacted agencies agencies and their missions specifically. Well, it definitely limits how far most um, city government agencies can go because they, the budget is, is not entirely controlled by the city. Um, for the child support arena, we had to rely heavily on our federal counterparts for funding. Otherwise, we really couldn't meet our mandate. And we relied on them heavily for conferences and trainings and things of that nature. So I think it's very similar in other arms of the government um, we would probably be able to do a lot more with resources and be even more key leaders and stakeholders if we actually controlled our own budget and funding and had the representation in, Congre- in, in Congress. In some ways, we're not really recognized uh, at the same level that our federal counterparts are recognized because we don't have a voice in Congress, a full voice. So um, I, I think that's key. And there's, there's really no way of getting around it. You mentioned um, that many folks are t- turned off from D.C. government because of the salaries and the, and the budgetary limitation. What's it going to take to um, to drive people like myself and maybe Jamie and Brandon, uh, mm-hmm. our, our interns, uh, to, to want to work for the government, want work for D.C. government in particular? Like, what are some other... Um, avenues that D.C. government must take to attract the best and brightest talent in the city and beyond? Uh, I will say that the difference is that you do have more opportunities in some ways in the city than in the federal government, more opportunities at a management level, more opportunities to grow into management, interface and network with key stakeholders. In the city, 
think the mayor and the heads of organizations are much more accessible and that you, even as an attorney, for example, can easily be at a stakeholder's table with the mayor or the mayor's cabinet members or representatives because the city does invest in uh, having a broader reach with uh, those who are, have feet on the ground. I mean, we would talk to uh, community stakeholders at the mayor's level uh, regularly because of their interest in the family matters or their interest in the uh, drug court or things like that. Um, so there are advantages in terms of exposure. I'm not saying that you necessarily want to stay there, but you definitely will probably get in the doors less bureaucratic compared to the federal government and their system mm-hmm. for applying. Um, you have a better chance of getting to know someone personally who can help you um, with an entree into the D.C. government or tell you about the opportunities that are there. I think you find more support mm-hmm. uh, through the D.C. government once you actually get your foot in the door or start meeting people. People are more open and relate more to the average person than I think the folks who are at the federal government level. You know, we're recording this episode on the 22nd of January. And as we all recall, we all watched on uh, CNN, MSNBC, and uh, some of the other corporate news um, uh, networks, we watched what could very well be a breach on the U.S. Capitol. And what we also witnessed is the completion of uh, the presidential inauguration of um, um, Joe Biden. How would you assess um, the D.C. government and particularly Mayor Bowser's uh, performance? In terms of ha- trying to handle and manage all these different events um, in our in our city here, I think that's a huge um, issue. Is that again, if DC was a state, she would be considered a key stakeholder with the federal government in assessing safety and protection throughout the city. But because that is not the case, she was very limited, and in fact, turned down when she requested. Uh, the reinforcements that she thought were going to be needed, and and that's appalling and it's unacceptable. And again, this is a this would be an area that it should be bipartisan, coming together and saying, okay, this is a practical issue, and it is a major safety issue, not just for the city, but for the federal government, for Congress, because that leaves the, all those individuals exposed, which was the case that day. We did not have reinforcements there for quite some time. I mean, definitely. Um, that could have been prevented altogether, potentially, had there been a great show of force, which she, as I understand it, requested and was declined. She had to go to the governor of Virginia and the governor of Maryland, who were more responsive than the folks who were here on Capitol Hill. So um, she has to have the right to seek enforcements and, and whatever those channels have to take, whatever benchmark she needs to touch. She certainly should have had them in place for for this incident, and it could have been far worse. Um, We are lucky that it was not, but we don't want to take that chance again, I would hope. I mean, definitely the congressional element of this is is a big factor and a big influence in pretty much all of of, of the actions and uh, initiatives that the D.C. government looks to take. Um, You know, in terms of... um, Events like this and in future events beyond DC statehood, what are some other changes that you'd like to see going forward? Um, I think there, there, and I'm hearing that that may it may be the case, but there needs to be more of a bipartisan effort bringing together common interests, even though the parties may be different. For us to really heal as a nation, we have to address some of the tensions and the toxicity that we've seen over the past four years. I mean, I think it's been there in some form or fashion prior to this, but but everyone has hopefully learned a lesson, which is that we cannot operate as a country. We can't be united if we allow politics to divide us. And ramping up things, ramping up divisiveness, that is not going to benefit us. And I, I think the backlash to the Black Lives Matter movement was that some factions felt threatened by that. And as a result, it formed radical elements. And we have to address that. That cannot be tolerated any more than other terrorists have been tolerated in this United States. I mean, that's homegrown terrorism. We're concerned about outsiders. But in fact, our greatest threat over the past four years has been internal. 
the United States. The bomber in Boston, the young man who killed protesters, the protester in Charlottesville who was killed, um, what you saw on Capitol Hill, those are all folks who are born and raised in the United States of America and felt it was okay for them to take up arms and protest an election. So we should all be very concerned about that and very focused on how we address that, um, not just on the record, but off the record, through internal channels, how we cultivate a different kind of relationship and get away from just the politics of uh, partisanship and look at where our common interest lies, especially security. Um, but yeah, it's going to take a lot the community, the faith-based community, which is something that, uh, that President Obama used. Um, all the sectors of the community that are religious, that are faith-based, all of those entities need to come together probably on an ongoing basis from now and I would say for the next few years, if not um, indefinitely. So, you know, a big, a big part of what we try to do with this show is is talk about solutions. And given, you know, um, the vast and diverse kind of conversation we had today, what what are some takeaways that you want our um, listeners and our viewers to get from this conversation as it relates to um, organizational change in D.C. government and government in general and any other thoughts related to that? Uh, My takeaway is that, you know, we have to be willing to work with others and help others from the bottom to the top. We tend to focus more on the top, but we have a responsibility and um, just in all good consciousness, we should have a moral compass that pushes us to not just look at the top where you have the educated folks, but also to look at the folks who are coming up from the bottom. Who, as I said, in one case, we had a, someone who was a, gra- a grade one, which is that's not a living wage. We need to make sure that we're also cultivating and supporting those uh, the lower rungs so that they come up through the ranks and they can become managers and representatives of their communities and their experiences. And we owe that to them. Um, even after I was no longer a manager dealing with some of those same folks, I still reached out to assist them to make sure that they actually were able to get promotions when it was appropriate. Uh, but in terms of the top levels, I think we need to do better about not allowing personalities to dictate who we bring into the government, whether it's federal or local that there needs to be more transparency and fairness in that. And that once people are brought in, that there is a mentoring process because too often they come in and people have factions and their own personal interests and subjective desires and ways of addressing people that are not necessarily appropriate or beneficial to the organization. But there's no way for anyone to really address that unless they have an open door at the top to do that right because you know there are factions that that are very negative and very toxic but can remain in positions for years and years and make decisions that impact people who come in with fresh ideas and talent and skill sets but if those individuals don't like you personally then you have a problem so um to check that you have to have some um ability to talk to folks at a higher level and have candid discussions. And then um, also, you know, where do you think uh, from your observation, because I'm sure you still keep keep in touch with some of the stakeholders and still um, are, are abreast to some of the affairs of D.C. government. Where do you think D.C. government is headed and where, do, where does it go from here, from there rather? It, it appears that there's still a, a huge vested interest in the community. Um, there may not be as much as there once was in the sense that um, I don't know whether there should be term limits either for the city council or for the mayor. But after a point, there seems to be um, less transparency and, and it becomes more a matter of who you know to get into the positions and and sometimes the salaries that we're paying people because of who they know, and this is from what I, I've verified, even though I'm not there now, there are actually grossly exaggerated salaries. I mean, this was recently published right. that the salaries of a number of D.C. government employees is over six figures. And that makes And these are people with very little experience or background. And so it's become, again, it appears to me from what I've seen and read, 
that it's becoming more and more a matter of who you know rather than whether you're actually talented, whether you're, you're actually contributing to the needs of the city government, whether it's actually benefiting taxpayers. Um, you know, through this pandemic, a lot of the government offices have been shut down, but everyone's getting paid and there doesn't seem to be a lot of effort being made to address the needs of the constituents who are actually making those salaries possible. I mean, we're well enough into this pandemic that that should already be um, easily addressed through remote working and, and things along those lines. But I do know personally that that has been very problematic trying to get through to some government agencies that are critical, particularly in this pandemic. And they have not been accessible at all and they have been getting paid. So there's very little transparency at this point, whether it's exacerbated because of the pandemic or not. I think there needs to be more along those lines and there needs to be more accountability for the exorbitant salaries that I have seen in writing addressed in a not too long ago, a report. And it's easily verified because you do have public access to salaries. And it seems to be completely disproportionate to skill sets, background experience, value, or, or any of those things. So um, somewhere in there, there needs to be a check and balance. And, and it's for that reason that sometimes you think that maybe there does need to be federal oversight. And that's the kind of thing that lends itself to the federal government saying, yeah, this is why we need to be here. Because the next thing you know, we're back to having um, the city in receivership. Um, so there, do, there, does need, there does need to be some independent uh, ability to either prevent exorbitant salaries taking shape or assessing why there will be so many salaries at such high levels, uh, given the, the taxpayers um, who have the need for services but are not necessarily getting them. And yet you have these folks at the top who are making a significant amount of money and it just seems to be disproportionate. So somewhere in there, there needs to be a check and balance. And I'm not sure that once you get to the higher levels, people are able to fairly do that. So there needs to be some sort of bipartisan effort or uh, independent ability to assess a limit, to place a limit on how many salaries can be at that level and then a basis for it. Right. Definitely a lot of common sense here uh, with, with that, those kind of recommendations. Um, any final thoughts before we close? Uh, no, other than I appreciate your efforts to bring together all of these different interests and, and maybe your show can make the difference. I hope. <laughs> yeah, your podcast, you know, that can make the difference. Maybe your organization can uh, help to get the message out there about statehood and bringing stakeholders to the table because that's where it starts. There has to be personal connections and relationships. And right. then amazing how far that can take you. Well, well thank you, uh, Angela. I appreciate your time. And thank you, viewers and listeners, for, uh, for listening to our very lively and informative, insightful conversation. If you like what you heard, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MSY Associates. You can also follow us on LinkedIn at the same name, as well as on YouTube and Vimeo. Thank you. Thank you for your time. This is uh, Government Plain Language. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the show, please share it with others. Share it on social media and even leave a review. To catch all the latest from our team, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MSY Associates. That's MSY Associates. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.